Today, we'll discuss the service staff shortage in America and how it's affecting your experience at your favorite restaurant. We've also received a record number of voicemails about cell phones in schools, so we've invited on an expert to help answer your questions. And we'll also tackle new data about how companies are adapting to AI. Is your company a winner or a loser? Do you even know? All of this and more on The Lost Debate Show, a show for political eclectics. Hello, everybody. I'm Ravi Gupta. And I'm Ricky Schlott. Well, Ricky, I'm fresh from Austin, Texas, to Jackson, Mississippi, to Clarksdale, Mississippi, to Oxford, Mississippi, to Memphis, Tennessee. And uh, my Man of the People tour has concluded, and I'm back in Brooklyn, New York. I will not dig at the Man of the People label, but I, <laughs> I bristle at that. But um, I'm in Nantucket right now and doing oh, my own little you. jet setting. Look at you. Oh, I'm yeah, not okay. claiming to be of the people on Nantucket. I've, I'm claiming to be as waspy as I possibly could sound at this moment. So, you know. Well, I'm sure it's lovely up there. And speaking of, I'm, I'm trying not to do speaking of segues, but this one is too obvious. Like speaking of two men and the people, Elon Musk uh, apparently tweeted that he was up for a cage fight with Mark Zuckerberg. What is a cage fight? I think they just mean MMA fighting. Um, okay. And Zuckerberg responded by posting a screenshot of Musk's tweet with the caption, quote, send me location. Musk then replied with Vegas Octagon. Uh, these two have bad blood, allegedly, going back to 2016 when the SpaceX rocket carrying a Facebook-owned satellite failed. Uh, and obviously, Musk's acquisition of Twitter means that they're both competitors. They also have very different styles. I would say Musk generally says whatever is on his mind, and and uh, Zuckerberg uh seems to be a little bit more cautious with his public persona. Yeah, this is, I'm, I'm glad to see him respond with a little bit of humor, which feels very uncharacteristic. Semi location is kind of, it's a little witty for him. I feel like I see him mostly as an, an alien, but um, I'm putting my money on Musk. I just don't think that Zuckerberg is, I, I, I think of him as someone who would cower at a punch just instantaneously. Oh, he's been training. Yeah. But I, if this happens, I mean, we could do a friendly wager. He's been training. He's been MMA training. He also has been doing the Murph, which is like a very competitive CrossFit workout. It's 100 pull-ups, mm. 200 push-ups, and 300 air squats flanked by a mile run on each side of it. And he's got a really good Murph time. And so, you know, I my money, I'm not like, I'm not a fan of either of these guys personally, but I think that... Zuck, it seems to have been training specifically for this. Uh, what would be fascinating if Bezos entered the fray, because I think he's the most jacked of the three of them, although he seems maybe a little bit more secure in his masculinity. He's, he, he doesn't seem like the kind of person who would take the bait on such a challenge. He's too busy on his yacht. Well, now that we've collectively lowered the IQ of our audience, I think it's a good time <laughs> to segue to our friend, Doug Lamov. We have gotten more voicemails on phones in schools over the past few weeks than any other subject. Yeah. And so we wanted to bring on somebody who I really trust on the subject. He's written about this in his book called Reconnect, Building School Culture for Meaning, Purpose, and Belonging. He is the co-host of one of our shows here at the branch called Sweat the Technique, which is all about educators taking lessons learned within the classrooms and applying them to all aspects of life. He's also the author of the international best-selling book, Teach Like a Champion, which is now in its third version, and The Coach's Guide to Teaching, uh, and also a book that I personally love the most, which is called Practice Perfect. Uh, and I can go on. Uh, Doug is somebody who has both revolutionized the teaching profession. Uh, he was an excellent school leader and superintendent, and he also coaches professional sports teams and others on how to adapt good teaching methods. Doug, you have some thoughts on on cell phones in schools, so maybe we could start there and say, "Welcome to the podcast." Welcome. And thanks. Give us your before we even get to the voicemails. What's your theory about the place or the lack of place of cell phones in schools? Yeah. Uh, well, th first of all, thanks for having me on. I appreciate I appreciate the opportunity. I think that uh, that schools have to step up and they have to restrict the access of cell phones in schools. Uh, the analogy that I use in my book is, you know, I went to high school in the 1980s, uh, and I, I have three kids now, and they find this story almost inconceivable that in my high school, not only could you smoke in school, but school, but 
but smoking was tacitly encouraged. There was like a, <laughs> there was a student smoking lounge area that was like on the map of the school. So you could that find it more so easily. And there were like, me. there were ash cans there. Right. <laughs> so it, it was, it was enabled and people were like, Oh, students are going to have to live in a world with tobacco. So they might as well learn to make adult decisions about tobacco. But 16 and 17 and 18 year olds are not adults. And this is a product that is designed to, uh, to addict, <laughs> to addict people. Mm-hmm. And I actually think that there's a pretty good analogy there for cell phones. There are two major problems with cell phones in schools. First, they are an attention fracturing machine. They're designed to, you know, there's a great phrase about information technology, which is if you're not paying for the product, you are the product, right? They are designed to bring eyes, to bring eyeballs to apps and advertisers, uh, which is kind of a creepy analogy, the idea of eyeballs. <laughs> um, but that's, but you know, they're designed to fracture your attention and cause you to pay attention to things that can be marketed to you. And because what we know about neuroplasticity, you know, the, when you spend your time in a constant state of half attention, not focused on one task, distracted by new and shiny information, your brain will rewires to think that way, to expect those things. You know, a lot of there's there are a ton of different bodies of research around this, but typically people say like the average teen spends 19 seconds on a on a task on their phone before they go off to something mm. else, and so that fractures attention in school, right? When you uh, and you know, I just think if, if we're serious about learning, especially post pandemic, we need to restrict that. And then we can get into the second body of data, which you want to is which is also that a, a cell phone is a a social isolation machine and potentially an anxiety machine uh, for young people. Let's get, yeah. Especially, especially for girls, yeah. Before we get to that, because obviously Ricky is in the middle of writing or has finished writing a book about this subject and herself is a member of Gen Z. And so I definitely want to get to that. But before we even get there, let's talk about this. You're, you're, you run schools and you, you're a parent. Yeah. And let's start with the school front, like technically speaking in details, if you were school principal today, you know, say middle school or yeah. high school, how yeah. would you deal with cell phones within the school? So first of all, I want to say, I think there are a range of viable options, none of which are cell phones are okay. And we're just going to ignore it and pretend like it's not our problem. Because I think, interestingly, like this is a collective action problem. And I'll, I'll talk about that a little bit as a parent. But I think the range of solutions runs from the rule in the school is your phone is off and in your bag and not out, except at specific times and places where we mm-hmm. say it's okay. So there's like a 10 minute, 10 minute time at lunch when you can text your, you know, check your parents or whatever you need to do to make sure that you have a ride home or you can get to, you can get to basketball practice. It's off and it's, and it's away except for those specific times and places. And if we see it, we take it. I think that that is, to me, that's probably the optimal solution because uh, I think there are a lot of issues that parents have with like, my kid can't have their phone. Mm-hmm. What if I need to reach them, mm-hmm. et cetera. But I think the problem with that is that, you know, uh, it requires follow through from the adults in the building. And one of the hard things about running a school is if you don't have a really strong, intact adult culture, there's always some teacher that chooses to be the popular teacher. To go back to my smoking analogy, like there was always some teacher who would like lend you a cigarette if you needed one <laughs> in the 1980s. Can you believe I can tell you the names of the teachers so we all remember them, right? And they choose that because they like, look, there are a certain number of people who like, they either don't support, they don't support the organization's decision. They want to be the cool yeah. teacher, right? That's a lot of pressure. And so there will always be, a t- you, if you don't have an intact, strong adult culture, there will always be some teacher who will not enforce the rules and who will allow kids to have cell phones out, you know, even though it's the rule otherwise. And so if you have that kind of culture, I think then you need to think about something like yonder pouches where kids act- actually have to put their phones away and lock them away. I think it's much more, more laborious. I think there are downsides to it, but I think the upsides of the, the necessary benefits of restricting cell phones in school warrants that kind of um, determined action. On the yonder front, I um, I recently wrote an article about this and I spoke to a superintendent who is using them in his school. And one thing that's just really, like I would never have even thought of this, but it makes perfect sense. There are kids that are bringing like old phones and stuff and putting them in the in, <laughs> in the pouches and then they just right. have their phone, <laughs> right. which is um, very elaborate. You can always but count on yeah, kids. I don't know. Yeah. Like yeah. for me growing up, 
the policy, which by the way, growing up was three years ago for Ricky Doug, just so <laughs> put this on there. <laughs> now that I'm celebrating my 12th birthday. She's our spy. Um, <laughs> you're, our, you're our spy in exactly. culture. Great. I appreciate it because I'm oblivious to it. So growing up in the 2000s, that was precisely what you're describing was the policy at my school of like, just if you see it, it's confiscated and it's a big deal and your parents have to get it at the office with you um, at the end of the day. And so that was like a, perfect deterrent. I mean, yes, people use their phone in the bathroom and like would probably mm-hmm. disappear for too long during classes. But like by and large, that was, it was not allowed in the lunchroom. Like you had to have a conversation. You couldn't be sitting around and staring at your phone. It wasn't a subject of like mass revolt at my school. That was just the policy. It worked really well. And I, it's like almost hard for me to fathom that there are schools where that wouldn't be the case. That wasn't the case in my high school. I think high school may be a different test case, but the idea of having done middle school with cell phones is just shocking to me. Like there's no excuse because I saw it operate pretty much perfectly in my own school experience. Well, what challenge Doug is like when you're running these schools like that, right? Like Ricky's school sounds like it's really like it was strong culture and was well-maintained. There were the like loose teachers but you know i mean by and large it was still a big deal and it doesn't have to be for i mean i think your example of like there's still kids who we know went into the bathroom and got on their cell phones in the bathroom like okay i was gonna is it gonna be perfect no but but if the kids have to if if kids have to go to the bathroom stalls to use their phones like you're winning right the idea is you don't want the phone out uh and a room you know there's all sorts of research on the notion that like if your phone is out even if it's not on, even if it's not in your hand, even if you're not looking at it, it still distracts you and still, you know, and so like some people will say like, why we can't restrict it because kids will break the rules. I'm like, I can't think of a rule that, that young people are not, <laughs> will not find a workaround yeah. on. We just want to like have the rules be consistent and effective and enough to highly marginalize uh, the cell phone in the school building. So I think that example of like the upside, which is like, we actually had to look at each other and talk to each other at lunch and have conversations, which are like, it's so important totally. in an era of um, teen isolation and anxiety and loneliness to like actually come to school and look people in the eye. I interviewed a student for for the, my book, and she described the first day back at school after a pandemic. And she said, "I'm walking down the hallway, and my, my, my like uh, three best friends are down the hallway, and I'm walking towards them, and they're all looking down at their phones, and they didn't even look up at me. And I was like, that was like the worst moment of the pandemic for me. I was like, why, you know, why don't I just go home and like do mm. school on Zoom mm-hmm. on Zoom after that." Uh, so I think just that notion that like, it's not just that we're in the same place, but we're connected socially is really Absolutely. important therapeutically for young people. So that upside that you described, I think is key. And like, okay, if a few kids break the rule and they're in their bathroom stalls by themselves, like, you know, sneaking onto Twitter. Okay. I, I can, I can live with that. Well, Doug, let's get through some of these voicemails and I haven't heard any of these and Ricky, I don't know if you have either. So we're going to all respond to them. I think organically, let's go to this first one. Hello, Ricky and Ravi. Um, my name is Lucas, and I'm a public educator, and I was just listening to your latest segment on cell phone policies in schools, and um, I just keep reflecting on the things that I've experienced because of cell phones with students. Um, I mean, students are getting into fights because of things that happen on the phone. They are going into crisis because of things that happen on the phone. They are having prolonged conflicts because social media creates, I mean, what's essentially an arena for for other students to kind of have their popcorn and, you know, kind of chime in and exacerbate issues that we as adults may find to be trivial, but social media just blows things up, you know, definitely in ways that may not need to in some cases. And, um, you know, and whenever stuff like this happens, a lot of things we hear from parents are how come, how come there isn't a, a stronger cell phone policy? Um, but then you also get the other parents, you know, if a kid does get their phone taken away, I pay the bill for that phone. You're not taking my property. You're not taking my kid's property. So that's just a constant rock and hard place that we're, we're facing in public schools right now. Um, and just wanted to put that out there. Love listening to your show and um, take care. Bye. Yeah, Doug, I don't know if you've had the experience of having to take a kid's cell phone away from mm-hmm. them, but it, mm-hmm. it is among the most difficult conversations I've ever had with families before because we had a three strikes policy where you, we would yeah. keep it for a certain amount of time. We'd then take it for a, a longer amount of time. And then the third time we would not give it back. 
and that was in the contract when the, the kids came to the school. But Wait, we're talking what about do you mean not families. give it back? Like literally fully? Literally not give the cell phone back, which mm-hmm. I know is sounds yeah, a bit much. I'm not but at that, that point, policy. like... <laughs> Like you have to have some kind of consequence and it's either that or you suspend some, like you have to have a ladder of consequences. Right. And like, I feel weird suspending a kid. Right. So, um, and obviously there's a lot of negotiation around those policies and I could talk forever about when we bent or we didn't bend because I feel weird about taking anybody's personal property. And so I would say that's an area where we were very fuzzy. Uh, but it's, yeah. it's very hard to have that conversation with families and find a good yeah. like series of consequences. Yeah. So the question is just in terms of taking someone's, you know, taking someone's phone. Yeah. That's a really hard thing. I think the most, but I think, you know, schools have to be prepared to do it in the, you know, I think one of the challenges of running a school right now is that, you know, decline of faith in institutions is one of the, was one of the sort of macro trends in society right now that I just don't think we've like acknowledged fully that makes it, makes it really hard to run any institution, Yeah, which is it used, it used to be like my dad told me, whether you're right or wrong, if the, you know, if the principal ever, call, ever calls me, you know, like, uh, the expectation was that like, he was going to back the school. Right. And that that was, uh, that, you know, because I had to understand that to go to school, you had to follow the rules and meet the expectations of the organization and that that was good for you in some ways, but that sometimes you couldn't have what you wanted because you had to do things that served the interests of the larger group. And I, I think that that's hard now. P- parents are, parents are less receptive to that argument for better and for worse. So I think to make this work, I would need to be really transparent with parents and share. I would, you know, there's a large body of data on this. I tried to just sort of describe the research and the book reconnect with my, my colleagues when we wrote it uh, on both what it does educationally and what it does psychologically to students. And I think I'd want to share that information with parents at the outset. You know, one of the reasons we went through it so laboriously in the book was that school, so that schools could par- share it with parents and say, look, this is the reason, this is the rationale. We have to do it for the greatest good of all of our students. And so we will enforce it. And then I think you have to have a reasonable ladder of consequences. I might not go as far as actually taking the phone and not giving it back. You know, I'd probably start with, we take it and your parents come down and get it. And, you know, we, and we meet with the parents and we talk about, you know, what's next. And then the next time it's two days and the next time it's three days, you know, hopefully we extinguish most of the issues when we realize that actually we're going to enforce this and it's going to be predictable mm-hmm. and you have to, and you're going to have to change your behavior. But you're also right, Robbie, there will always be some parent who's like, not, accept- <laughs> who's just not going to accept it. And I think that, um, or who just doesn't have the control yeah. over their kid, you know, which right. is, well, I think it's, yeah. I mean, because you have two types of parents, you have the types of parents who are desperate, right? They see what it's doing to their kids and they actually, I think most parents actually want support and partnership with the school because, you know, to the caller's point, it's, it's not just that it, it's not just that it's addictive. It's not just that it causes loneliness and anxiety, but there are all sorts of, you know, there are all sorts of other behaviors that manifest themselves that parents can't control. I would just say as a parent, we wanted to be the last parents to give our kids cell phones, but you can't really do that to your kids, right? The soccer team, right? All the, everyone on the team decides like, you know, what uniforms are going to wear to the match and, you know, where they're going to meet up to, you know, to get mm-hmm. to the match. They do that on, on cell phones with it. When people meet after school, no one is calling you on your landline to say, this is where we're getting together. So not having a phone is, you know, would be a life of social isolation. 99% of kids have them. It's not really an option, but once you give your kid a phone, right, you're no longer in control of what they see and what they hear in fact, so much of what's on social media is designed to disappear before a parent can see it and have a conversation with their kid about like, how do you process that someone said that to you, right? Uh, a, a psychologist said this to me. She said, in our generation, by which I mean, you know, me, boomers, et cetera, <laughs> <laughs> you know, when someone bullied you at school, you came home and you were free of it. And, you know, like being home was the, was the antidote and you were surrounded by your family, et cetera. But now you come home and like it's in your pocket, it's in your room with you at night. Your parents can't see it, right? Uh, so I, I would just say like we haven't talked about this, but for parents, I think one of the most important rules is no cell phone in the room at night. It has to live, you know, it has to mm-hmm. stay down in the kitchen or whatever, uh, you know, just like. Which, by the way, is a good adult rule too. You know, you and Doug, I think so. You, Doug, you and I have had long conversations about like. Yeah, trying to find where the symmetry between adult expectations and kid expectations because it helps kids like feel like there isn't a double standard, right? Yeah, uh, and I think this is one of them. Where often most of the stuff we say about cell phones for kids 
should also be true of adults in the workplace and the kitchen table and the work dinner with your colleagues or mm -hmm. whatever. Mm -hmm. Like there's a symmetry between what we would expect in a school and we would expect in the workplace. Like pulling out your cell phone in the middle of a staff meeting like would be really inappropriate. Now it's different like kind of consequence because it's, you could lose your job there, right? Yeah. <laughs> so it's like right. if you're inattentive in a meeting, but it still is inappropriate. Might I butt in to say that we're um, pretty much addressing the issue of the next caller here. So let's listen to what Steph from California said. Hi, my name is Steph and I'm from San Clemente, California. And I have a 14 year old daughter who recently did have issues with too much screen time and addiction. And we sent her to a summer camp for a few weeks and it really helped. It really helped. And yet even for me, this story that I hear about kids being too much on their phones and it's affecting their reading levels, it sort of breaks my heart because how are we expecting these teens to not use their phones when everyone around them is using them? I mean, how can we look at data that says, oh, teen reading for pleasure is done without looking at everyone's reading for pleasure? I'll bet if you ask how many adults or grown-ups, so to speak, how if they're reading the same amounts that they used to read for pleasure, all of our numbers are down. And I think it's asking way too much to ask our teens to come in and just read for pleasure when mom and dad are on their phone. Or maybe we're on a tablet reading, but still, it's... It's sending the wrong message. So we have a, a rule here at our house now where if our daughter walks into our living room and she doesn't have our phone, we put our phones down because it's important that we are engaging with them without our phones so that they can see that. We can model that behavior. But it, it just it's so hard for me to hear that we're putting all this weight on these teens to not use their phones when everyone around them is using their phones all the time. I really think we need to start couching the language with, we all need to start reading more for pleasure again. We all need to start putting our phones down um, because we can't expect them to do it of their own choice when we're not even doing it ourselves. You know, what's interesting from this vantage point is I was, my parents were super intentional about like at family dinner, absolutely no phones. That would be like a sin. But it's funny, like now I'm the one that nags my parents when we're out at dinner. I'm like, guys, excuse me, I don't do this. My phone's not out. Um, so the tables have kind of turned. It's <laughs> it's definitely um, true that I think like even for parents that were very deliberate in raising me that way, it's easy to slip into your own sort of um, cycles in that sense. And, and I mean, obviously at this point I have my own example, but yeah. I had the same experience with my mom recently who I, I actually think I agree. My mom is worse than I am by far on the cell phone, mm -hmm. pulling it out in front of me. Yeah. I think that might be generational. Like I think that the people who kind of came of age with more tech are um, more allergic to the concept of just like going out and like, I don't know just funny watching adults or parents text with a single finger at the dinner table but <laughs> i have three kids uh two of them are off in college now and they're wonderful kids we're really close i would say <clears throat> the hardest issues that we faced in parenting were definitely around cell phones but we held the line about your cell phone is not in your room at night there's no cell phones at dinner you know um we were strict about it strict but loving but we were strict and I think the interesting thing is I also have a third daughter. She's in, she's going into 10th grade. And when my kids come home from college now, they're like, they want to enforce the rules as much or more than we do. So like they come home, we're a little, you know, we might be a little bit like less attentive with number three. I think that's a natural parenting thing, but they'll be like, excuse me, excuse me, no phone's out of dinner. Why is your phone out of dinner, dad? And right, so, which I think is funny, but in part it shows, I think they would, they would say now, they would recognize how much they value the structure that uh, and the limitations that we put in place. And they see, you know, they describe kids that they see at school and, uh, and their behaviors that are different. And I think that they didn't, I think this is important for parents and probably schools to think about, which is they did not like it at the moment. And they fought us on a lot of the restrictions. And now that they're a little bit older, they're actually grateful for it and want us to uh, have those restrictions for their, their little yeah. system which, you know, I think that's interesting, but it like, did not take long for them to recognize. Totally. That. And like one thing that no matter what politics of any of my friends, like I have friends that I disagree with on pretty much everything, but the one thing that everyone agrees with is that we have like a phone and social media problem. I've never heard a Gen Z or be mm -hmm. like, no, this isn't an issue. Like, yes, they still have a problem. Right. And yes, they're still participating in that issue. But I truly could not conjure up a single example of someone who would um, even slightly fight the fact that, that cell phones and social media are an enormous issue for my generation, hundred percent. Isn't that sad? Isn't that sad? Like we are all we're all aware that we are 
not able to control the beha- our yeah. own behavior in a way that is optimal, that we're all addicts and we have not been able to do anything yeah. about it. You know, we all wish that we had more self-discipline to read more or to get out and exercise more mm-hmm. and to be less beholden to our phones. And yeah. 100%. We got a voicemail last week, Doug, from somebody saying that they would want their kid to have a phone in an active shooter situation. And here's a voicemail from somebody who it seems has a different perspective. Let's play this. Hi, Robbie. Hi, Ricky. Um, I have an issue with, I guess by the time you play this, it'll be, you know, last week's caller. Um, you know, talking about guns or, or having your phones in the classroom, um, you know, during an active shooter drill, uh, seems to me like that would be pretty dangerous, right? Uh, that this would be, um, you know, if you had a phone going off while the active shooter is in there or around, it could, you know, attract their attention. Um, so, you know, I just wanted to, to bring that up. Uh, seems like it would be dangerous and counterproductive. So, uh, y'all have a good one. Bye. Where do you come down on this, Doug? Because this must be one of the biggest, this is definitely the, the pushback I hear the most when it comes to having a strict cell phone policy. I guess I have two thoughts on it. One is that in an ideal world, phone off and in your backpack is better than a yonder pouch because if there's ever an emergency, like let, let's not let's not limit it to active shooter. Like God forbid there's an active shooter, right? An active shooter situation. Then you're dealing with someone who's mentally ill and a highly like aberrant, unpredictable, unpredictable behavior. Um, there are... <laughs> There are better there are better responses to that than like you know having my cell phone having your cell phone or not doesn't really address the the core problem of the potential of active shooters in schools, but to that anxiety that parents feel, yes, it's probably better in the long run in the face of emergency to have your phone off, not just in your backpack but turned off and in your backpack mm-hmm. than in a yonder pouch, but. Um, if we can't enforce it, then I think we have to think about yonder pouches. And, uh, you know, I, I know that like my, my own child's school has yonder pouches and apparently the pouches are released in the case of an emergency. Oh, wow. I didn't even know that technology was possible. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I, I think like as we sum this up, I think there are a couple of resources and I know that two of you have spent a lot of time on this issue. I'll just share a couple of thoughts about how I think about this in terms of society writ large, because as our second voice male uh, listener shared, this is an issue we all face. I think um, there's a book called Stolen Focus by Johan Hari, mm-hmm. which I really liked, which I think is a, is a realistic picture of how difficult this can be. And it's all about his journey to try to put away his phone um, for, a, I think it might have been a summer uh, away and while he was working on the book. And it's it's got a lot of information about the science behind our, our in a, inattentiveness as a society. Um, two is like, in, and this is almost the opposite of his thesis, which is like, he kind of blames the tech companies and kind of says that like attempts to optimize around this will inevitably fail, but I th- I still think it's worth trying. And so I use an app called Opal, which blocks most of my apps during the day. Um, I have a little like thing timer. Ricky's seen this thing before where I put my phone in a little time box in the morning for a few yeah, hours made fun so of that I can't thing get to it. Quite a lot. <laughs> And then on Saturdays, I tend to try to put my phone away and leave my apartment house or wherever I'm staying without my phone um, if I don't have any emergent situation to deal with or somebody I need to be in you know, immediate touch with. And those are just some of the things that I do. I really want to do that last one. But truthfully, I just don't feel safe out and about on my own as a woman in the city. And then yeah. I'm literally am considering getting a flip phone for or like old school phone for that purpose because I want to be able to go out and like still call 911 if there's a problem, but leave my phone at home. Like it's, that is something I wish I could do. Any resources you guys think about? I know that you both spent a lot of time on this issue or practices. Yeah, sure. So, um, well, one thing I would just say is in, uh, the, the, my most recent book reconnect, which was uh, written with a couple of different colleagues, one of whom is a school principal. We just tried to assemble the research case as well as we could for why schools are a problem and why phones are a problem in schools in part so that schools and school leaders could understand it. And in part so that they could communicate it to parents. Cause I just think like part of it is having, having the data and the research to have an honest conversation about the things that we're talking about. Cause a lot of parents are not aware of it uh, or they're aware of it and they, you know, they don't understand how bad it is. So uh, hopefully that would be, you know, we deliberately put that in there to allow school to make, to 
help schools to make the decisions that they need to make in favor of young people. And then I think there are a lot of great books out there. Uh, you know, I think Cal Newport's book, Deep Work, is also just really Love interesting for professionals yeah. to, think, to think about how it affects your own capacity to work. I feel this all the time as, as a writer. Like my, uh, It takes me longer and longer to produce things because of my own distraction. The kind of pacts that parents make with one another of no one's getting a phone until a certain age, that helps with the FOMO stuff considerably. Um, also, the... Like, I mean, just built in parental controls on phones. I think a lot of parents just mm-hmm. fail to even access those or, or tinker with them. But I think starting that early and that's just an expectation that you have a limit on on certain apps is um, definitely a good idea. And then I would say in terms of further resources, Jonathan Haidt has some really great stuff on this. And if you want to like really convince yourself that this is a, a major issue and kind of scare yourself into quitting it, um, I would say he's his Substack is probably a good place to start. He's fantastic, by the way. Can, can I also just say, as, as from a parenting perspective, I would just say that um, in, in Jonathan Haidt's and Gene Twenge's research, there I think there's some really important clues for parents. And one of them is that, like, no cell phones at night in rooms, mm-hmm. no cell phones at dinner. But also, it's not just restrictions. It's finding things that are antidotes to cell phones. You know, a cell phone... The rise of cell phones has caused students to become more isolated. So the average 12th grader goes out on their own about as often as the average eighth grader did in the, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, around the turn of the century. Right. So students have fewer to go back to your having lunch and looking people in the eye conversation, Ricky, students have fewer and fewer interactions like that. And so as a parent causing your students to causing your, your kids to do things like one of the things that is the best antidote to the psychological damage that cell phones do is whether you play sports or whether you're involved Mm -hmm. in organized activities, because those things cause you to put your cell phone down. You can't have your, you can't have your cell phone in your pocket when you're playing lacrosse. So that's two hours a day when you're interacting with people socially building connections Mm -hmm. and you're not on your phone. And so helping kids to find activities and join activities that connect them to other people is just as important as restrictions on, you you know, put your phone in a lockbox. Yes. And then do what? then go out and connect to people and build relationships. Yeah, one one last piece on this is we talked about the NAEP data uh, in a previous episode and talked about Jonathan Haidt's thesis that the NAEP drop has something to do with cell phones. I would say that our colleague, Brian Hill, sent me a long email this morning. Uh, he's the superintendent of KIPP New Jersey in Miami uh, and the co-host of the Sweats Technique podcast with us with like a really thorough rebuttal of that that I don't have his permission to share in full, but I will, I'm going to ask his permission to see if we could share it either in the show notes or uh, on the Umbrolio blog, because he he has some really good statistical pushback as to, well, if it, if cell phones are really the cause, he has like a bunch of questions that are really good questions. Mm-hmm. So I at least want to share that perspective. So uh, hopefully I can, I can get his permission to share all of that. But Doug, thank you so much for, for joining you. us today. I know a lot of our listeners are going to find this super valuable. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Well, one thing that I've been noticing consistently since the post-pandemic era is just this unending staffing shortage issue in the service industry. I think it's um, something that a lot of people are at first had a lot of patience for, but with like leeway in the pandemic and saying, you know, it's okay if it's taking a little bit longer and people who are actually working good for them. But I think a lot of people's patience is wearing thin right now um, as we're seeing kind of incompetence in some places or, or mandatory tips tips and surcharges. And a recent uh, poll that the Wall Street Journal featured showed that 42% of diners have been upset by lack of staff recently, which is um, really an peculiar issue because you'd think in the post-pandemic era that people would be um, all over grinding and getting getting back on their feet. But this, there are 2 million fewer hospitality and leisure jobs right now than there were before the pandemic. And that's just a really staggering number. And it seems the industry is struggling to respond to that. And Ricky, I, there was this event with Bernie Sanders recently where a Starbucks worker said that there's not a labor shortage in this country. There's a good job shortage. Fewer of us are doing more work than we did before the pandemic. Let me be clear. Though we're understaffed, we don't have a worker shortage. We have a good job shortage here in O'Hare Airport. 
And I get that for sure. And there's a whole debate around labor protections. But in the end, we like we need people to do service jobs, right? Mm-hmm. And right now, not enough people are taking those jobs. And we also have, uh, you know, this looming question of immigration. And, yeah. you know, in certain states like Florida, you know, DeSantis signed a bill recently, the Senate Bill 1718, which... Uh, and requires employers with 25 or more employees to use E-Verify to essentially say that they cannot employ uh, undocumented workers. So it seems like it will probably exacerbate this issue there. I don't don't know. Like, in the end, we need people to do these jobs. One thing, though, that I think is a silver lining here is that there have been, like, there's been this rejiggering of people in the economy right now where, yes, there are 2 million fewer hospitality and leisure workers, but there are also 1.4 million more people in business services, which could be office jobs, engineering, law, kind of white-collar stuff. And so, you know, there is, in the post-pandemic, there seems to be some people who've ascended up the ladder away from those service industry sort of jobs. But certainly, I think in um, New York, particularly, one thing that Eric Adams was rightfully really upset about with the asylum uh, seeking issue and all the asylum seekers that are here is that we have a federal policy where they can't work for six months, which is just totally asinine to me. I mean, I've I also, it makes them more dependent on the government to be housing them and, and feeding them and taking care of them. And like, I understand some of the logic to that, but I think that should absolutely be overturned because that would, I mean, people want to work too. And, and it should be, it's, especially if they're here, they shouldn't be directly prohibited from doing that. But, you know, the, there are t- openings in um, dishwashers and cook positions, particularly in the service industry. Um, and yet there are applicants that are ghosting employers um, during interviews, not even showing up. Uh, fast food restaurants are operating with 10% fewer employees and full service restaurants with 7% fewer. So there's huge wide openings. And I, I certainly think that our immigration system, I mean, there are people who literally are here and cannot work and do those jobs that I'm sure would willfully take them if no one else will. Yeah. And this is an existential question for a lot of, uh, a lot of food service businesses, restaurants and bars, their profit margins are often three to 5% compared to 10 to 15% for regular retail, small businesses and other types of small businesses. And so they're operating with really narrow margins. And what happens when there's a labor uh, scarcity is prices rise and they went up Mm -hmm. 5.2% wages for hourly restaurant and bar workers from April of this year to the prior year, according to the Department of Labor. And this is also an industry that's seen the highest quit rate. The U.S. Chamber of Commerce does a whole analysis of, uh, which they just put out of uh, earlier this month, where they just go industry by industry. And the food the food industry and the accommodations industry uh, had the highest quit rate since the middle of the pandemic. And just for reference, the lowest is in healthcare and social assistance sectors, so like educational sectors, it seems. So this this does seem like a real risk for small businesses. And this is where I think the politics of this gets interesting, is like in Florida, are small businesses and other places where they're passing really strict immigration measures, are small business owners who tend to sometimes be really sympathetic to conservatives and Republicans, are they going to push back against some of these policies because Mm. it's going to increase the cost of doing business? Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is also like a self-perpetuating issue with what you're bringing up with the quit rate, because the, the less people there are, the more stretched than the people who are actually working feel and become and legitimately. So considering that they're, they're operating with, uh, considerable percentage of fewer employees and the more abuse they take from people. And I I mean, I understand, I think it's, there's been, I I, I don't really have any major memories of like egregious lacks of lack of service or like really poor, slow service before the pandemic, but I have plenty post pandemic, but you know, you have, you have to feel bad for the people who are actually showing up and doing those jobs though, because it becomes that much harder and they're then that much more likely to quit because that's exhausting and people are fed up and they're fed up with people being fed up. Yeah. And there's a, there's a firm that does research on the food service industry called Lisa Miller and Associates. They found that 42% of consumers dined out in May were frustrated by the lack of staff, which is down from a peak of 45% in February, but up from March and April levels. Uh, and, you know, generally speaking, this gets to like, you know, Jared Polis, I interviewed him about a year ago during sort of the height of the inflation 
debate. And he said, you know, I asked him, what's your solution to the inflation crisis? He said two things. One is lower tariffs and two is increased immigration. And I thought that was a really simple message. And say like, all right, like what he's getting at with the second part on immigration is like labor is, I think, one of the remaining drivers. As the supply chains have cleaned up and inventory is cleaned up, the and the demand equation has kind of equalized coming out of the pandemic and people have spent down a lot of the money that they had saved up. In the end, this labor question is probably the thorniest question remaining when it comes to inflation. And we have only so many tools in our toolbox to get people to do these jobs. I mean, some of the solutions are really not even that promising, in my opinion. Like a QR code menu really doesn't cut down on that much of <laughs> an, an employee's time on the job or make it easier for them. Um, but like returning some, some firms are returning to in-person training because for some reason they were training them still in like pandemic era sort of um, like remotely. But like uh, even these, these solutions that these restaurant chains are coming up with just don't feel like they're going to do anything meaningful to address the underlying and systemic issue here. Certainly. Yeah, and at a certain point, especially if it's a QR code like at the airport where you order it on your own, at a certain point, you you change too many things about dining out and people are just going to order Uber Eats at home. Like, yeah. why go to a restaurant if you're just sitting on a tablet ordering stuff that comes to you? You might as well take it out, you know? Yeah. I'm watching my father try to figure out a QR code. It's just, <laughs> I had dinner with him recently and it was like, that was just never going to happen. And it's, it's not, that's, I mean, that's certainly not an, a solution in my opinion for the consumer or for the person working. I don't think that makes their job all that much easier, but yeah, I think this is going to be um, certainly an issue that I, I wonder the more it impacts the typical American. I mean, it's half of diners that are upset by this. I think this is really a like tangible case to be made for, for increasing work visas and increasing immigration. And it's one unique place where it's directly felt by the vast majority of Americans. And so maybe if this continues in that way, that will um, meaningfully kind of tilt the, the interest in being more permissible and having people come here to, to actually work. All right, well, let's talk about this article from The Economist. So they had this, this write-up where they did this incredible analysis where they examined data on all firms in the S&P 500. And they basically were asking the question, who are the companies that are poised to take advantage of AI right now and who's uniquely exposed to AI right now? And they looked at five measures, share of uh, issued patents that mention AI, venture capital activity targeting AI firms, acquisitions of AI firms, job listings citing AI, and mentions of AI technology on earnings calls. And they basically you know, stack ordered the industries and companies that are most taking advantage of AI and least taking advantage of AI. And I think, Ricky, what, what came out of this, I wouldn't say it was shocking, but I do think what's clear is there are some major, major winners right now. And I think this is, in a way, could be accelerating the inequality uh, in the tech industry and the strength of some of these conglomerates and, mm. and the big five, right? So the share prices of the big five, Alphabet, Amazon, Apple, Meta, and Microsoft have jumped 60% since January when measuring an equally weighted basket. Uh, and there's like a chart in this Economist article that shows that the share prices of one chip maker, NVIDIA, has tripled yeah. uh, and the other, AMD, has doubled. Um, and this this is coming at a time when the P.E. ratios are 10 times that of the medium firm uh, in the S&P 500. So like the market is pricing in some major, major wins in the future for these companies. And I think we're, you know, there was a period of time when there was, you know, talk of a flattening of the S&P and NASDAQ and that these tech companies, um, you know, were in for a reckoning post-pandemic, yada, yada, yada. It feels like the exact opposite now. And it's fascinating to see these existing companies, obviously like NVIDIA and these chip makers, they're literally being invested in because they're at the core of this technology. But existing companies that might not intuitively have an, an AI bent are basically doing everything they can to be like, hey, look at us, we're modernizing and we're doing it. And they're very public and forward facing, I think, in order to attract investors to believing that they can actually 
um, adapt in the post AI world. At JP Morgan, for example, they hired 600 machine learning engineers, and they say that they have 300 internal applications for how they use AI in their company. Eli Lilly uh, has 100 pro- projects using AI. Starbucks promised, this is bizarre, to use $1 billion to make the perfect vegan breakfast sandwich, which I'm with AI, which I don't and I think really that ent- might have been Schultz himself. I, I couldn't yeah, tell from so that right up. It's yeah. it's very public facing of like here here we are we're modernizing we're like it's a contest of who can raise their hand and say like we're going to be at the forefront of address of adopting adapting to this issue. And it's also interesting to see in the JP Morgan situation that there's actually an increase in jobs as well because I think a lot of the fears is that corporate corporate AI will take away jobs. But I don't know. It's, it's, I think yeah. it's where we have, it's just so crazy to me. I was thinking this morning of like, which jobs will be the most sustainable going forward. And it's just, it's so hard to wrap your head around how, like, there are just a million different ways that all of this can unfold. And it's, it's fascinating to watch even vegan breakfast sandwiches for some reason be <laughs> part of the conversation. Well, about two thirds of the firms in the Economist universe placed uh, a job ad mentioning AI skills in the past three years. Uh, and uh, today, 5.3% of their listed vacancies mention AI up from a three year average of 2.5%, so more than doubled. Um, and in certain industries, this is much, much higher. Uh, and they particularly look at Hey, what are the industries that are that are really taking advantage of this? So when they looked at this, it seems like other than big tech, uh, which is obvious, like certain companies like insurance and healthcare are at the top of the list in adopting AI. But what they mm-hmm. also say in this piece is that those are the those are the sectors where if you're not adopting AI, you're the most vulnerable. And actually, they say like some of the highest ranking according to their score across those five metrics companies are in insurance and healthcare, but also there are some companies at the bottom of the list that which have nearly zero indicators of using AI. And the economist seems to think that those companies are vulnerable. And yeah. what was fascinating is they said that like their AI score, like basically, you know, the, the patents, the earnings calls, job postings, et cetera, when they stack order companies based on their AI score and then compare it to their stock prices, over mm-hmm. the uh, the equivalent period of time, uh, there is a correlation there, like a pretty strong one. So the companies that have like that have um, scored well on AI indicators are also getting a lot of market attention. Yep, the top 100 share prices are up 11 percent versus the lowest quintile of the companies that they analyzed in terms of their AI adoption did not have any um, considerable movement. So it's interesting to see, yeah, how this is all playing out. And also they they mention uh, the data intensive providers like the insurance companies, the financial services that you refer to, but also the fields where tech is already disrupting industries. And this is just kind of the next iteration, which is car makers, telecom, media, retail, things like that. But um, it's also interesting to watch like on the individual level as well, even um, like in my own industry as a writer and a journalist, this is something that certainly there's a threat to certain kinds of journalism, I think. But it's been like a a personal challenge kind of in a um, analogous way to the way that companies are figuring out like either we adopt this or, or we're completely inefficient compared to the competition. Like for me, I've, I, I hate AI conceptually. I don't really want have anything to do with it. Um, Certainly, I would never write an article with it. But I am doing things like if I do a phone interview, and it's an hour long, rather than listen back and transcribe it, I'll send it to myself in Slack. And then Slack comes up with the transcription. And then I'm that much quicker than my coworker that's going to sit down there and and spend the hour or two hours. Yeah, if you send an audio recording on Slack, it'll transcribe it in like two seconds, which it's hard to believe how much of my day is spent otherwise transcribing (laughs) interviews is just nuts. So I think it's like this kind of, can you keep up with making yourself relevant and making yourself cutting edge in the same way that companies Mm -hmm. are are doing the same thing and, and ultimately will be able to produce and be more efficient as a result. Yeah. And I think undoubtedly there are a lot of companies that are just throwing AI uh, on top of their their marketing to just try to claim that they're taking yeah. advantage of this technology or doing it in very superficial ways. And I think one of the things that the market uh, is, is inevitably doing is trying to parse out who are the people who are for real, like Microsoft clearly 
is an example of this and who's mm-hmm. faking it. And and I think there's a, the inevitable comparisons to crypto and the craze around crypto. I think like what it has in common with crypto is the hysteria around it. But what I would say is different is that I think the hysteria is warranted in a way that wasn't true of crypto. I don't think crypto is a was fake or you know unjustified in some kind of hype. It obviously didn't live up to the full f- hype yet. I think AI is clearly living up to the hype very quickly. Hundred percent. The amount of users ChatGPT, for example, you compare it to the amount of crypto users, just even the first month of ChatGPT is dwarfing anything we've seen in that space. So I think like I could see why people are making those comparisons. I just don't think that they're, I think we're talking apples and oranges. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, crypto just has a singular purpose that, I mean, like conceptually I agree with, but that's a singular, I mean, I, I guess you could... F- zoom out to the blockchain more generally and say that 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 might be more analogous but you know crypto has has one application and we know what the application is and the application is the application this is just like it's hard for me to even think for as little time in the scheme of things that we've been doing this podcast like where we are right now with ai is unimaginable to me when we first started talking about this stuff like it's it's really creepy. Like I, I don't know the the exponential pace of technological change right now is really frightening to me. Like I feel like we're just on the the precipice of a black mirror sort of situation because I could not fathom like the stuff that is just like I could open up Chat GPT right now and that's something that is just conceptually I would I would have thought was a hundred years down the line, literally like a year ago. It's just terrifying. Yeah, and I think it's definitely one of those things where you got to control what you can control, period. So I think if you're a listener and you're in an industry that, which is almost everybody, you're in an industry that is in some way going to be affected by this, you have Mm -hmm. to have a strong theory of the case as to how you want to adapt and what you think your competition is going to do. And that story has to line up. Right. You can mm-hmm. decide not to use it. Like, right. If you're running a yoga studio, for example, you probably don't need AI. Maybe you could, if you really wanted to for customer acquisition or whatever you could, but you really don't. Right. Whereas if you're in the healthcare industry, if, you know, if you're, um, you know, in the insurance industry, if you're tech, right, like you have to have an answer. Right? And I think for a lot of people, even wrapping their heads around this is like, it's just moving. Look at Congress. They were like, they did a hearing and then they're like, okay, we'll see you again in a couple months. And I'm like, that's not the kind of urgency here. Everybody's got to be more urgent or you're going to get flattened. Well, that's all we have for today. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back here on Thursday with a special episode. In the meantime, please rate, review, and subscribe. Give us five stars. We always appreciate it. It's how we keep this going. And our voicemail, if you have any thoughts, maybe we'll do another special episode. Um, Or if you have any topic suggestions, maybe give us a call. 321-200-0570. And we will see you soon. The Lost Debate is a part of the Branch Network. The show is produced by Mickey Ayub, research support by Ariane Misra, video editing by Julia Waldman, and editing and sound design by Dean Metherell. 